following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. Well, good morning, Harvest. It is uh, ah, great. It's great to see all of you here, both our regulars and our guests today. And uh, as Jordan has said, my name is Dan Brubaker. I'm the associate pastor here, for those who don't know me. And uh, our lead pastor, Todd Dugard, and his wife, Cheryl, and their family are down in Virginia this weekend celebrating their eldest son's graduation from, uh, from Liberty University. And that's a great thing for them. And then Todd is actually going on to Florida this week and is going to be training some pastors there and uh, working on the preaching plan for, for our church for next year. And then speaking, I believe, at one of the Harvest next Sunday. And so can I just ask you that you would be in prayer for him in a special way this week as he devotes himself to those really important ministry opportunities and uh, just that he would serve well and be used by God and come back refreshed to us. So please do that. I know he would greatly appreciate it. Now, if you're just joining us uh, today, this morning, we are continuing our series through the New Testament book of James. And uh, we've called it the No-Nonsense Guide to an Extraordinary Christian Life. And as we've been seeing, James unpacks some incredibly practical stuff, like how to deal with trials, and how to seek God's wisdom, and how to overcome temptation, how to treat people without partiality, how to put our faith into into action, how to to control our tongues, and and so on. We've just been seeing all of these very real-life things. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but for me, it's just so cool to see how God's Word... Uh, speaks with with clarity and uh, with urgency and with simplicity to the everyday issues of life. And my hope and prayer is that that will be true in our time in his word this morning. As we get started, I want to ask you, how many of you have heard of of Jim Collins? If you have a friend named Jim Collins, that's not the Jim Collins I'm talking about. But how many of you have ever heard of a, a very famous person named Jim Collins? Wow. Okay. I think it's just me. Uh, well, well, Jim Collins is actually an internationally known uh, business consultant and lecturer. Uh, he's a best-selling author of some books, including Built to Last and uh, Good to Great. Maybe you've heard of those titles, How the Mighty Fall. And uh, Jim Collins is actually, through his teachings and his writings, he's introduced a number of ideas that have become very standard thinking today, not just in the business world, but even just into kind of regular life. And one of those concepts is what he calls the genius of the and versus the tyranny of the or. The genius of the and versus the tyranny of the or. Anybody ever heard that before? All right, I'm pretty much alone up here. That's all right. Well, uh, the basic gist is this. Let me just kind of unpack it in a sentence or two. The basic gist is this, that adopting an either or mindset is unnecessarily limiting because you actually have to choose between two things. It's either, either this or that. Whereas, um, adopting a both and attitude, a mindset, is incredibly freeing. Because you can actually have it all. Does that make sense? So, just think about it with me. I mean, why would you want to have to choose between watching this TV program or that TV program? I mean, just PVR them both, and then you can watch them when it works for you, all right? Or maybe when you're at uh, dessert time, and it's a big family gathering, and there's lots of options. Why have to choose between apple or cherry pie? I just have some of both, right? Are, are you with me on that? 
uh, or maybe in the business world, why be a company that's focused on either good customer service or a big bottom line? Why can't you go after both? So that, that's the genius of the and versus the tyranny of the or. And I don't know about you, but, but I think generally speaking, I prefer both and thinking. That, that's kind of the way I like to go through life. I'm not a big fan of either or approaches. It just seems too rigid and too, too restrictive, too limiting. I'm one of those guys who likes to have his cake and eat it too. Maybe you are too. But in James 4, 1 through 10, and if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there right now? James 4, in your Bible or on your phone, get there right now. We'll get there in just a second. In this passage, James chapter 4, James lays out two options for your life. All right, two options for your life. And guys, these aren't both and options. They're either or. It's either or. Either you can be a friend of the world or you can be a friend of God. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no feed in two camps. There's no little of this and a little of that. No equivocation. It's either or. And friends, you have to choose. You have to choose. You have to declare yourself. You, you, you can't remain neutral. You can't stay kind of undecided on the sidelines. It's either or, and you have to make a choice. And my hope and prayer this morning is that each of us, each person here, would consciously choose to be a friend of God, whether for the very first time or in a renewed way like never before. That's my goal this morning, that we would choose to be the friend of God. So why don't you... Uh, Look at James 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll jump in together. All right, James 4. He says this. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I'll just pray for a moment together as we jump in. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the promises that you make about your word. God, that it is, it is alive. It is not just like any other book. God, thank you that you promise that as it goes out, it will achieve the purpose that you set for it. And so God, I pray that you would make that so in our gathering this morning as, as we study this really challenging passage in James. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would take this this truth, put it deep within our hearts, and that you would bear much fruit in our lives because of it. 
God, I know it is nothing about the messenger. It's all about the message. And so, Father, would you do something very special in our midst this morning? We pray that for your honor and glory. Amen. Well, James paints two pictures, uh, one of what it's like to be a friend of the world and the other of what it's like to be a friend of God. And he does so that, so that we can pinpoint exactly where we are at the present and so that we consider, uh, can consider where we want to be in the future. And before we go any further, you may be kind of already wondering what exactly I'm getting at with this friend of the world lingo. I mean, like, is God really supposed to be my only friend? Is it really like either I'm friends with God or I'm friends with other people? Is that what I'm saying? No friends at work or at school or in my neighborhood or even here in the church? Is, do you think that's what I'm saying? Do you think that's what James is talking about here? No, that's not what he's, that's not what he's getting at. When the Bible talks about the world, it usually does so in one of three ways. Sometimes world refers to this actual planet or even the universe. And in those cases, world is, it's talking about a physical place, this place that we're walking on right now. So sometimes in scripture, that's what world means. Other times, world refers to people. Uh, For example, John 3.16, very famous passage, God so loved the world. It's not talking about the planet, although he does love what he created. It's meaning that God so loved people that he sent his son. That's why he sent his son, because because he loves people. He loves the world. But the third main way that the word world is used in scripture is to speak of of a spiritual reality, a spiritual reality that the Satan directed system of this present age, a system that is hostile to God and to God's people. It it refers to the self-centered beliefs and morals of fallen mankind. So as you consider the context of, of James four, I think it's pretty clear that it's this third meaning of the word world that James is using here. And I, and I hope because of that, it's pretty easy to see why this is an either or choice, why this is an either or thing. Bottom line, you can't simultaneously embrace the values of our contemporary culture and the values of Christ's kingdom. You can't do it. It's not a both and proposition. It is an either or proposition. They're at odds and you have to choose. And no surprise, the picture that James paints of friendship with the world is not pretty. It's a life filled with conflict of of multiple kinds. And there's there's a definite progression to the conflict. So let's start with this thought. It should be in your notes and you may want to follow along and jot some things down this morning. Here's the first thing. If you're a friend of the world, you'll have conflict with others. You'll have conflict with others. Notice what James says again in the very first part of verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels... And what causes fights among you? As evidently, James's original audience wasn't getting along well. And instead of striving to create a climate of peace and thereby produce a harvest of righteousness, which is just what he was talking about in the last verse in the previous chapter, we were there last week, instead of producing that kind of positive situation, the people were manifesting just the opposite. They were living in an atmosphere of, of constant quarrels and fights. And now these two words in the original Greek were most often used for physical conflict between individuals or even nations. I mean, we're talking all-out war here. But here they're, they're referring to kind of antagonistic attitudes and, and aggressive arguments that, that just absolutely devastate relationships. 
And the phrase there, among you, indicates that this, this combativeness was, was going on between members of a church or members of various churches to whom James was writing. It's not just that these believers were having problems with their unbelieving neighbors and co-workers, which they may very well have been having. But more to the point, they were having serious conflict with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were fighting with fellow sinners for whom Jesus sacrificed his very life. It's heartbreaking. And scripture is crystal clear that that conflict within the church isn't God's plan. Quite the opposite. I just want to leave you a couple of verses. John 13, 35. You probably know this one that says that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10 writes that, that there should be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.10. So listen, God's heart is that we would be united, that we would be bound together in uncommon community. But so often we fall short of that. It's an awesome ideal, but reality is far from it. Isn't that one of the biggest complaints of unbelievers as, the, as they look at us? Isn't that one of the biggest criticisms we hear? I mean, they, they say stuff like, listen, my problem isn't so much with Christ. My, my problem is really with Christians. The way they treat each other, their words, their actions. Friends, this isn't how it should be. But honestly, it's, it's somewhat inevitable as we become friendly with the world, as we fall prey to Satan's divisive schemes. And, and James goes on and he explains where this conflict with others comes from. Look at what he goes on and says. He says, what is it that causes these quarrels and these fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on, your, on yourselves, on your passions. So here's point number two. If you're a friend of the world, you'll have conflict with yourself. Not just conflict with others, conflict with yourself. Where's this conflict with others coming from? James points his finger at the passions that are at war within you. He says, listen, the problems that you have out there are because of the problems that you have in here. That's where it's coming from. It's our own out-of-control desires. The Greek word that's translated passions there in verse 1 is, is the root for our English word hedonism. Hedonism. Which you probably know is, is a philosophy that views pleasure as the ultimate aim of life. It's the most important thing we've got going is pleasure. And James portrays these, portrays these cravings, these appetites, these passions as residing within the human heart and battling it out for true satisfaction. They're waging war, trying to get the upper hand, get enjoyment and fulfillment. And of course, these, these passions, these desires can take many forms. We can... We can seek pleasure through accumulating stuff or achieving positions of power and prestige or through substance use and abuse or through sexual expression or through leisure and on and on it goes. And I hope this morning you can 
that you're pretty aware of where your passions take you, which direction they lead you. And listen, the Christian life is a moment-by-moment struggle deep inside to find ultimate meaning and joy, to find genuine fulfillment in the things of God rather than the things of this world. Let me say that again. The Christian life is a moment-by-moment struggle deep inside to find ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose, genuine fulfillment in the things of God rather than the things of this world. And I don't know about you, but some days it seems like we're winning that battle. Sometimes I feel like I'm actually on the right side of the equation. But other days, it seems like I'm going down for the count. You know what I'm talking about? And that internal conflict is just bound to have external impact. I I just can't keep that bottled up. It's going to spill out and it's going to have collateral damage. Notice what James says in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's using very strong language here to express what happens when our passions kind of hit a dead end. We just, we lash out in very hurtful ways. I mean, he even mentions murder here. In context, this is most likely hyperbole for hatred. And uh, you can look up some passages on your own. Matthew 5, uh, 21 to 22 and 1 John 3.15, those are just a couple of passages where hatred is equated with murder. Basically, James is saying that when our desires go unfulfilled, that internal conflict comes out in seriously negative ways. Just remember, when you're a friend of the world, you're not a friend of God. You're not in tune with his plans and purposes. You're not on the same wavelength. And that's why James goes on and says that you don't have because you don't ask. You, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Like it, it doesn't even dawn on you to go to the Lord and to, to ask him to fulfill your desires according to his will. It's not even on the radar. I mean, you just believe that all of your needs, all of your wants can be met on your own. Not like we sang this morning. We didn't think that they're found in him. We think they're found in ourselves. And so you never think to ask God for anything. And even if you do think... To ask him. You're not asking so that God's goodness and his grace can be magnified so they can be on display or, you know, so that his glory and his honor can be for all to see. That's not why you're asking. You're, God's nothing more than a cosmic ATM. You're, you're simply looking to cash in his gifts for your own personal gratification. And because of those wrong motives, James says, listen, God doesn't deliver. God's not going to answer the prayer if it's given for that reason. And all of this, it just points to the internal wrangling. That that conflict that you have with yourself if you're a friend of the world. Friendship with the world is, is fraught with conflict. Conflict with others. Conflict with yourself. And third, conflict with God. Conflict with God. If you're a friend of the world, you'll have conflict with God. Look at what he says in verses four through six. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And I started out this morning explaining that this whole friend of the world, friend of God thing is either or. It's not both and. And so to declare yourself in one camp is to automatically put you out of the other one. And so, friends, when you try to straddle the line, when you try to to play both sides, it's just not going to work. And James uses some pretty radical language here to make that point. Notice he, he calls that person who's trying to do that adulterous. Adulterous. It's not speaking literally. It's not talking about a person who's actually violated their marriage covenant. But this term is, is used frequently in scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, to refer to those who commit spiritual infidelity. They, they forsake their covenant with the Lord and they pursue other gods. For example, Jeremiah 3.20, God says this. He says, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. And often in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as a loving husband who's been rejected by his promiscuous people. And God rightly longs for the wholehearted devotion of his followers. He wants a committed spouse. And that's why he says in verse 5, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. When we enter into a relationship with God and he gives us his Holy Spirit, he isn't happy when we still want to play the field. He's not happy. He wants our relationship to be exclusive, not open. This isn't a casual dating thing. This is a committed marriage. And so James calls us adulterous. Ouch. But he's not finished. Uh, If you're trying to be friends with both the world and God, James says there's enmity. Other translations you may have say hostility or hatred toward God. And and, and he says it makes you his enemy. That's strong words. In other words, if you're a friend of the world, then your relationship with God isn't neutral. You're his foe. You stand in opposition against him. You are his enemy. Whether you recognize it fully or not, you have chosen a place of opposition toward God. You stand against him. That's a place of serious, serious conflict. It's not a good place to be, friends. Psalm 68, 21 says, God will strike the head of his enemies. It's not a good place to be, to be in a place of conflict with God. And it's not his desire. That's not what he wants. He says in verse six, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God will do battle with those who are his enemies, who choose to be friends with the world rather than friends with him. But that's not what he wants. He's ready and willing to pour out his grace in abundant measure so that we can reject the world's ways and embrace his ways. And friends, God is offering that grace to you this very moment. That grace is available to you. He's inviting you into the life-transforming friendship with himself for the first time, perhaps, or in a very deeper, more renewed way this morning. Friendship with the world is a place of unending conflict with others, with yourself, and with God. It's, it's horizontal, it's internal, and it's vertical. Who wants that? Is that the kind of life you really want to live? A life of continual conflict? Choose instead to be a friend of God. It is the best decision you'll ever make. It's the best decision you could make on Mother's Day. What mom doesn't want that? 
In the rest of the passage, James unpacks what it looks like to be a friend of God. What, what you'll go after. What will be true in your life. What are the things that you'll be in pursuit of. And so let's look at those. Notice first, he says, if you're a friend of God, you'll get strong. You'll get strong. Look at the second half of verse 7. We'll come back to the first part later. 7b. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Once again, if you're a friend of God, you're not a friend of the world. And that means you've rejected the godless values of our culture and you've embraced the values of Christ's kingdom. And that doesn't make the devil very happy. He's not happy that you've chosen God's ways. He wants to take you down. He wants to pull you back onto his team. He wants to destroy your life completely. And he's relentless. No breaks. No timeouts. 24-7. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, we're on Satan's menu as the featured item every day. Think about that. And we need to get strong. We need to get strong. Resist has the idea of standing up to, setting yourself against. Now, it's, it's, it's worth noting that while we're commanded to resist the devil, we're not told to stay put in the place where his schemes are, are most intense. And sometimes, like Jesus himself experienced in the wilderness and in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's just no options but to stand firm right at that point of temptation. Just stand firm and resist. But oftentimes, much like Joseph did back in Potiphar's house in Genesis 39, we need to run away. Literally. We need to run. Either way, our call is to resist the devil. We've got to get strong. And one of the keys to strength is knowing your own weakness. And so you need to be aware of the chink in your arm or the, the places where you are most susceptible to the devil's attacks and build an appropriate safeguard so you can resist him in strength. And what an amazing promise that when we do that, the devil will flee. The devil will flee. Now, be sure, this doesn't mean that he's going to leave us entirely alone. He'll be back. He'll be back. But if we resist him, he'll have no true power of us, over us. That's what he's really saying. He'll flee. He does not hold any power over you. And so if you're a friend of God, you'll get strong. You'll get strong. Secondly, if you're a friend of God, you'll get close. You'll get close. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, in this passage so far, there's been a lot of words of antagonism. But here are words of approach. There's a move here from kind of the stiff arm to open arms. And keep in mind, the first half of this passage was about friendship with the world. And, and James' listeners had broken fellowship with God, and they had experienced the conflict that goes with that. And now here, God is commanding, but, but even more so, he's inviting that they would return to relationship with himself. And the word that's translated here as draw near has the idea of getting really, really close. And I don't know about you, but for me, the unbelievable thing in this Verses that God promises to move toward us as we move toward him. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't like head in the opposite direction and say, listen, turnabout's fair play. Come and catch me if you can. You had your time. I've got my time now. 
God's not like that. And nor does he stand still and say, listen, I'm not moving one inch. If you want to come to me, fine. But like, I'm not going to make it any easier for you. God doesn't do either of those things. The promise is that as we seek to get close to God, he, he similarly seeks to get close to us. It's like two trains heading in the same direction. It's an amazing thought. If you're a friend of God, you're going to get close. Perhaps you need to do that today. Perhaps you need to draw near. And James goes on and tells us how we can get close in the rest of these, uh, these verses. And one step toward getting close is getting clean. If you're a friend of God, you'll get clean. Look at the second half of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Our God is a holy God. And he can't be in the presence of impurity. So James explains that we need to clean ourselves up. We need to, to rid ourselves of sin. Those words cleanse and purify would have, would have conjured up in the minds of his Jewish audience all kinds of Old Testament imagery for how the priests and how the people had to, to prepare for worship and for sacrifice. They were to get clean just as we are to do the same. And James mentions both hands and heart. He's highlighting the, both the external and the internal, our deeds and our disposition, our actions and our attitudes. It's, it's all important, inside and out. Reminds me of Psalm 23, 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, there's a sense in which all believers are already clean. If you're a friend of God, if you've, if you've entered into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus, then positionally, you're clean. And it's not something you accomplished for yourself. Acts 15, verse 9, speaking of believers, says that God cleansed their hearts by faith. But I think you also recognize that, practically speaking, you continue to get dirty. Positionally, you're clean, but practically, we're dirty. You don't always resist the devil, and, and that allows sin to enter into your life, and as a result, you need to get clean again. Listen, for most of us, one shower a week doesn't cut it, right? And if you think it does, ask some of your friends, and they may tell you differently. All right? You, you need to wash off the grit and the grime regularly, consistently. And that's why 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not just a one-time thing. That's an ongoing thing. That's a daily thing. Maybe you're in that place this morning needing a spiritual bath. If you're a friend of God, you'll get clean. You'll get clean. And closer, closely related to that is this truth. If you're a friend of God, you'll get broken. You'll get broken. Look at verse 9. These come really quick. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sounds like a real downer, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like a real fun, fun day. But, but here James is taking on the voice of a prophet and he's urging us to get broken over our sinfulness. These commands in 7 through 10 that we're looking at aren't, aren't really in any logical progression because normally our our sadness over sin leads us to confession. 
Normally, it's our brokenness that leads to us getting clean. But James isn't really outlining a step-by-step process for becoming a friend of God. He's just, he's highlighting a number of things that'll be true in your life if you are God's friend. And here his focus is on repentance. On repentance, the piled up commands in this verse, be wretched, mourn, weep, and so on. They're all speaking about our response to sin. And the idea is that we should have an internal sense of regret and remorse as we consider the darkness of our sin. And that this internal angst should be demonstrated by external sorrow and grief. Uh, Let me just ask you, when was the last time you had an experience like that in response to your sin? Ever? Think about it. It'll be clear, James isn't down on laughter and joy in the Christian life. There's a time for every season, but this is not that time. Many people in our day, both followers of Jesus and those who aren't, they they just live according to an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die mentality. It just ignores the terrifying reality of God's judgment. And even committed believers can kind of slip into a casual attitude towards sin, perhaps presuming too much on God's mercy and his forgiveness. Perhaps that's your situation today. If so, I just urge you, deal with it. James issues a passionate plea for total and radical repentance. If you're a friend of God, you'll get broken. You'll get broken. Finally, if you're a friend of God, you'll get low. If you're a friend of God, you'll get low. Notice again the first part of verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James kind of bookends this section on being a friend of God with two statements that are essentially saying the same thing. You got to acknowledge, you got to recognize God's bigness and your smallness. You got to recognize his awesomeness and your commonness, his exaltation, your humiliation, his power, your frailty. You got to get low. You got to get low. You need to willingly place yourself under God's rightful authority. You need to sign over the blank page of your life to him and allow him to direct it as he wills. That's submitting yourself. That's humbling yourself. That's getting low. And it's a tangible expression of the fact that spiritual vitality comes not through our own independent effort, but through our utter dependence upon the Lord. That's where it comes from. Any attempt to exalt yourself by relying on your own abilities or your own status or your own resources, it ultimately leads to failure and it brings condemnation. It's not headed anywhere good. Luke 18 verse 14 says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. When we think we're all that, God puts us in our place. But, When we get low and we recognize that we really don't bring anything to the table, that's when God exalts us. That's when he lifts us up and and brings us into that special place of meaningful relationship with himself. If you're a friend of God, you're going to get low. You're going to get low. Here's how I'd like us to close this morning. Jordan and the team are playing and They're going to sing in just a moment. But I'd like you just in the quietness of your 
your place right there to do some business with God, to reflect on what you've heard this morning. This has kind of been a a line in the sand message. It's either or. And so first, I just want you to wrestle with the question, are you a friend of the world or are you a friend of God? And listen, if you're a friend of the world, if you've never been a friend of God, you could become that today. You become God's friend today. What's holding you back? If you say, no, no, I I am a friend of God, but I I think I've been trying to put my my other foot in the world's camp. I've been trying to straddle things. I've been trying to have my cake and eat it too. What do you need to do to give your wholehearted commitment to the Lord? What areas do you need to to work on? Is Is it getting strong? Is it getting close, getting clean, getting broken, or getting low? So I just want you to bow your heads and your hearts before the Lord and think that through. No distractions. If you'd like to just sit in your seat and do that, if maybe you'd like to get down on your knees right where you are, maybe some of you would actually like to come down to the front and just have a special time with the Lord here. Whatever you'd like, just do that. And then we can enter into the song with Jordan a little later. I'm just going to pray for a moment as we enter into this time of response. God, I think it's been very clear from your word this morning that we have one of two options. We can either be your friends or we can be friends with the world. And so God, I pray for each person who is under the sound of my voice this morning that you would help us to truly answer the question where we are, where we stand. And God, if there are some steps that we need to take to get in a better place, to deepen our friendship with you, to begin a friendship with you, to make it more significant in our lives. God, may we not leave here without doing that. God, by your spirit, may you not relent in our hearts until we get serious about it. Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and our lives this morning. May we enter into that joyous place of friendship with you. What an awesome thought that is. The God of the universe who wants to be our friend, wants to draw near. God, may we run to you this morning. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.